Where there is secrecy, there is no truth. Without truth, there can be no justice. And without justice, there can be no freedom. UFOs pose a threat to national security for many reasons. The first of which relate to the general principle that these objects have been unable to be identified by this government for the last 35 years. The documents confirm the reality of these unconventional objects. And there is furthermore evidence that uh, these objects exhibit a technology that is beyond present-day technology, an advanced technology, a more sophisticated technology. It's, it's amazing, and, and the problem is that the government has continually misinformed the American public from way back from 1949 on. In early 2018, and before work began on Euphemet Season 1, producer Tyler Carey and myself decided to create an experiential mood board of sorts. I knew what Euphemet needed to sound like, what it needed to feel like, so to convey the concept to Tyler, we hopped in his car well past sundown and left LA, destination Joshua Tree. We rode through the dark, spring air whistling past high desert neon. We listened to old Art Bell, taking a ride through the night, Bob Lazar revealing deep secrets from Area 51 and the extraterrestrial beyond. We spread out on the car's roof in a park pull-off, allowing constellations to drape over us and grant us access to fall deeply into the unknown. The desert was silent, and so was the sky. On this night, she was keeping her secrets to herself much like the UFO phenomenon. A great tussle of expectations raged inside of me. I wanted to see something. I needed another experience to be shown all that we are searching for. But as we hear on this edition of Obscura, sometimes, no matter how hard we fight for the truth, and no matter how long, all is revealed, only when it chooses to be. I'm Jim Perry. This is Obscura, a look back at the stories of Euphemet Season 1. This time, we are not alone. Next on Obscura. So we left Joshua Tree. We're at a rather questionable budget hotel in Desert Hot Springs, and I'm trying to get to sleep. I remember there was a fridge in the middle of the room, and its doors wouldn't fully close. Its light flickered, filling the room with an ugly, residual, flashing glow. I was still listening to Art Bell, this time with guest UFO lawyer Peter Gersten. It brought me back to 1998, to that time of adolescence, of uncertain future, all potential but little direction, hopes and dreams and nothing but other people's stories to learn from, not enough lived yet myself. It reminded me of how I thought about UFOs at that time, and my belief, sight unseen, that something, someone, had to be up there. It was an opinion purely based on lore and popular culture. It was youthful idealism, believing in something that I had never experienced myself. I'd fallen in love with the notion that we were not alone. That guys like Gersten were out there proving it, and that I, like many others, were simply waiting for a greater sign. Disclosure, a black triangle-shaped craft landing on the lawn of the White House, 
Or maybe it was only a matter of time before an experience of my own. Nineteen years later, The Experiencer is with producer Chelsea Weber-Smith in Sedona, Arizona. We've come here to feature the now vortex-jumping Gersten, and have just climbed down from a morning at Bell Rock, all of which, including Peter's fascinating reality-bending experience, can be heard in episode 5 of You've Met Season 1. But for now, Peter is opening the front door of his apartment, helping create a cross-breeze from his patio door. Snoopy Rock looks from above this picturesque setting, It's why people retire here. It's why they visit, well, that and the crystals, but that's for another episode. Before the Vortex Jumper, Peter was the UFO lawyer, and a personality in the field that always intrigued me. He was one of the good guys, fighting the man for the info us believers desperately seemed to need. And now looking back, there was so much seemingly we already knew, so much that was already revealed. Peter's giving us a tour of his past, and for the first time today, we are introduced to the UFO lawyer of those early Art Bell episodes. It's the Peter I remember as a kid, obsessed with stories about UFOs. So, we'll look at the pictures, then we'll go around, you can... Record it as we go around. I'll okay. show you. And this is from my days in Westchester County when I uh, was uh, more involved with UFOs. And uh, I had a hotline, and people would call in whenever they saw one. We had a conference in Brewster. You're a, you're a celebrity. <laughs> Whatever that means. Right. People are talented, have abilities, sports, athletes, or musically inclined. I didn't have any of that. My fascination, the only thing was UFOs. UFOs, when I was growing up, I came in in 1942. UFOs made the headlines in 1947. By the 50s, the books were out. And they were talking about a lot of wild things, these books, contacts and and these strange craft, and I would read every single book and magazine that came out about it. It was amazing. And when I went to sleep, I would imagine I lived in New York City, and this area in the middle of the area was a big circle of grass and fountains. And I would imagine a UFO landing there and me walking on. But, I mean, people really respected you, and I think that really there's been a whole industry that has been created off the back of a lot of your work, right? I guess so. I was the only attorney that sued the government for UFO information under the Freedom of Information Act. There's no question about the reality uh, and and the existence of these unconventional aerial objects. You have to remember that during the last three years, the government, and when I say the government, the agencies of this government, from the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the Coast Guard, the National Security Agency, NASA, all the agencies have released approximately 3,000 pages of documents that have been classified up until the present time. Documents that have been filed away in their drawers that that nobody has ever seen other than military personnel. These documents have now come forward. 
Uh, besides these documents, the CIA is withholding 57 UFO-related documents in their entirety. The National uh, Security Agency refuses to even tell us the number of documents they have. If it wasn't for the fact that we were in court and in, a, in, a, in the chambers of the federal judge where the U.S. attorney admitted that it was 135 documents we were talking about. The new newspapers loved headlines, right? And they made the best of it. Court slips close encounter. UFO documents will remain secret. Look like, you know, UFO data is kept secret by the court. Court didn't even know that there was anything. They just didn't want to hear it. This is a, a, a big three ring binder yeah. just full of stories. UFO records to remain secret. They had a, a field day. Court allows U.S. to keep UFO data secret. You know, court didn't allow anything. They just didn't hear it. Come on, go, go home, kids. UFO buffs are denied close encounter with secret UFO documents. People would follow me, be on radio shows, TV shows, documentaries. Yeah, it was fun during the time. It was interesting. I was the only one who was doing it. And now, you know, people um, do it more often now, Freedom of Information Act requests. But now it's, it's, it's really uh, impotent because you need to know exact name of the files. Everything's computerized. Back in 77, when I first did the lawsuit CIA, they were all hard copy documents. They really, you know, Computers weren't like common use or anything like that. So, um, yeah, that worked out pretty good. And then we did some other lawsuits and things like that. But it's a phenomenon. Yeah, this was U CIA papers detail UFO surveillance. Yeah. Court, uh, court, high court to avoid close encounter with UFO groups, you know. And UFO buffs lose close encounter. They just loved all these headlines. <laughs> court rejects. You know, court won't let UFO buffs into hush-hush <laughs> files. You know, it was pretty cool. And how, how does it make you feel looking back on this stuff? Oh, it's like I'm just looking at somebody else's stuff. Well, basically, um, we were looking for UFO-related information. There's no question about that. And we had to bring lawsuits, unfortunately, against the CIA, the National Security Agency, which is more uh, secretive than, than the CIA. We had to bring lawsuits against the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Federal Aviation Administration. You can request documents of these agencies under the Freedom of Information Act, but unless they release the documents, you're forced to go into court to obtain the documents. And the CIA, for approximately uh, the 30 years the agency was in existence and the UFO phenomena was in existence and then interesting enough they both came into being more or less at the same time refused to even acknowledge they were studying the phenomena. Now in 1979 the CIA pursuant to a lawsuit I brought against them on behalf of Ground Saucer Watch um, released 1,000 pages of uh, documents relating to UFOs. Not only that um, they found other documents hundreds and hundreds of other documents that originated with other government agencies and they couldn't release them to us so they said here's the list you go request them from the other agency and just as importantly the cia withheld 57 documents on national security grounds saying that um it would jeopardize sensitive information if they released uh, these documents they wouldn't even redact them uh, to just have that object's characteristics so we took, um, um, went into court, and the court went along with the CIA. They didn't have to release them. We appealed it 
to the U.S. Court of Appeals, and they went along with the lower court. So then the, um, the possibility came that we could bring it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court is the highest court um, there is, and they decide what cases they want to hear. Like, you can request that they listen to it through a writ of certiorari, but it's up to them to decide. And they only hear a handful of cases a year out of maybe a thousand that, that are asked. So I said, listen, am I wasting my time just bringing this writ? They're probably not going to hear it. I'm almost sure they're not going to hear it. Is there another reason that I should do this? I need some kind of sign. So um, I don't know how long afterwards um, I get a call from this um, girl and she says, Peter, I don't know if you remember me. You met me at this party last week and so forth and so on. I said, okay. And she says, listen, I think you might be interested in this. Um, do you get New Yorker magazine? And I said, um, no, but I'm familiar with it. She says, I'll get the, get the current issue and look on page 43 and see what you see. So I got New Yorker magazine. In New Yorker, I'm familiar with the cartoons. It's pretty strange cartoons. Nothing to do with the story. They just put cartoons here. So you look at the cartoons, it says, quote, Gersten, spelled exactly my, the way my name is, how do you think you'd perform in zero-gravity environment? Question mark, unquote. So that's kind of interesting. Like, what does this mean? There's a guy standing in front of a desk, and the guy behind the desk is talking to him. Like, zero-gravity environment, okay, that's space, but I, don't, I still don't understand the whole cartoon what's what's the point of the cartoon but it was my name um so then i said let me look at the story even though it's unrelated and then if you look down to the first paragraph really you'll see peter uh quote question mark all right so that's pretty interesting here's peter here's gersten so yeah it's like a message for me but what's the message so i looked through the story and you see there's a girl mentioned elaine and she has a nickname, Laney, L-A-I-N-I-E, spelled just an anagram. But then somebody looked at it and said, wait a second, you know, Elaine's an anagram. You know what's an anagram for Elaine? Alien. Hmm. My license plate. I, Alien. <laughs> so I said, wow, that's pretty interesting. Okay, there's a connection there. A couple weeks later, my brother calls me. Now, you have to realize, if I'm going to program messages for me like I would have programmed these things, I'm going to make sure that somebody's going to tell me about it. Because what's the sense of, of programming a message if there's no messenger, so to speak? You know? <laughs> and in both cases, only one person. Otherwise, I would have, you know, not even known about any of these. My brother calls. So we go from a stranger to my brother. He says, listen, take a look at the back cover of Discover magazine. I said, the back cover? She says, yeah, go get it. So page 43 to the back cover, stranger to my brother. And here, is anybody out there listening? United Telecom asked Isaac Asimov. Isaac is a very famous science fiction writer. He writes about ETs and all things like that. And there's no question here, what are we doing to find them? What are the chances? So they're talking about ETs in space, right? So I'm looking at his caricature of Isaac holding a typewriter with a robot. And here, on the typewriter. Gersten. Hey, it's K. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It was the summer of 1952, and the state of Florida was experiencing a shocking amount of mysterious lights. A flap of sightings that reaches fever pitch when a UFO zoomed across the Key West sky in plain view of hundreds. A member of the U.S. Marine Corps, Ralph Mayer, assigned to Upalaka Air Station outside Miami, was watching TV on the evening of July 28th, coverage filled with UFO chatter. He could have never imagined how important this whole craze would become to him and to the world. It's 2 a.m. at a Hollywood Beach trailer park, and Thomas Surter is trying to get some sleep. Outside his window, a brilliant orange ball appears, hanging 2,000 feet up. The disc remained eerily motionless for at least three minutes, then suddenly began to wobble and disappear rapidly eastward over the ocean within a matter of seconds. Local TV WTJV posted a sizable reward for any cameraman who was fortunate enough to capture the saucer on film. The same station reported a sighting by a Miami resident that told of an object so low and close to the witness it was said to have rivaled the moon. The witness, Mr. Goldstein, claimed to have spotted the object, a huge reddish-orange blob, a flowing mass that had hovered some three minutes, long enough for him to summon his wife to confirm the sighting. He reports, Then an airplane started coming in near it, apparently on its way to the airport. The disc started moving slowly, then picked up speed and zoomed upward across the path of the plane and out of sight, hundreds of times faster than any plane I've ever seen. Mayer was so fascinated by the Goldstein account, he decided that the UFO might make a repeat appearance, much like a recent account in Washington, D.C. He checked out a 16mm film camera from the military store and phoned the Goldsteins to get permission to spend the evening in the yard in hopes the UFO would reappear. It was a clear, warm, windless night, with the moon at one quarter. It was getting late, 9.30pm, when Mayer happened to note the time, and let drop the remark, No saucer yet? Mayer and the others were suddenly jolted by an answer to the question. A woman across the way, who was not a part of the group, but evidently quite aware of the neighborhood news story, let out a shriek. There it is. Again. Momentarily paralyzed by the surprise, Mayer took a half minute to get his camera ready to film. Spotting a strange ball of light blasting across the sky, Mayer aimed the best he could and exposed 50 feet of film. To Mayer, this was a chance of a lifetime, and he may have made the best of it. The Goldsteins and the others rushed to phone the news media, but Mayer's first thought was not to make the next newscast. He pondered the possible importance of the film to the military, so he informed the acting duty officer at his marine base. Lieutenant Aldridge, who advised that the film should be handed over to the Navy authorities for study. What followed was a genuine UFO flap over the United States. Over the next several days, headlines in every paper intrigued and shocked the public. It was getting out of control fast. With film evidence now in possession of the military, the Miami Herald announced that there was photographic proof of the mystery marauders of the skies. 
but Mayer's marine superiors were more restrained. Mayer was interrogated, the evidence buried in plain sight with help from the press, and the Marine CEO of the Miami Air Station explained his own handling of the Mayer film in a letter to the commandment of the Marine Corps in Washington. Since there was so much interest shown in the film by the press, this command decided to make the photographs public to avoid having the press build up the story to a point where the general public would think that the Marine Corps has some very spectacular pictures. At the time, one couldn't imagine Mayer's 50 feet of film resulting in more government disclosure of secret UFO information than the still photos granted to the press. But with the help from Peter Gersten, decades later, Mayer's work would not go unnoticed. Truth would be found, perhaps more than one could hope. All they asked were for three little things. Three documents relating to a Ralph Mayer who took a, a film of a UFO in 1952. And when they put in a request for any documents relating to Ralph Mayer, the CIA admitted that they had five documents, but refused to release three documents. Uh, there were negotiations, conferences with the U.S. attorney who represented the CIA. In September of 1978, uh, a lawsuit was brought in September of 1977, entered into a stipulation where the CIA agreed to conduct a reasonable search uh, of all UFO-related documents. In December of 1978, the CIA released 900 pages of UFO-related documents. They had hit the mother load, and the stories that came out were startling. The reading of all the documents reveals that UFOs have the ability to render inoperable present-day technology. UFOs have the ability uh, to gain access uh, to our most sensitive military installations, unrestrictive and unlimited access uh, to nuclear installations. An example of some of the government documents we have uh, obtained the overflights over the military bases in 1975. In Georgia, there was a sighting of an army document. In, in, in 1975, in Algeria, in March of 75, there was an unusual sighting that the documents reflect. Documents are from all over the world. Uh, in 1976, there was an incident, September 19, 1976, over Iran, which the Defense Intelligence Agency, which uh, got the report from the attaché's office in Iran, evaluated as an outstanding report, a classic report, because it contained all the characteristics necessary to evaluate uh, a UFO report. Uh, an F-4 came in contact with a, with a, uh, a UFO, multicolored, brilliant light, and an approaching, an F-4 is an American-made Iranian jet, mm -hmm. an approaching, and we have to realize that this is an American-made jet we're talking about in 1976, an approaching the UFO, which was spotted on both radar, and, and visually, uh, it lost all instrumentation and communication systems, so they went out. And then when it decided to leave the area, uh, the instrumentation and communication systems came back on. Another F-4 jet was launched, and as it approached the, U uh, the UFO, um, out of this UFO came another UFO, an unidentified object, one-third the size, with, with intense brilliance, and came straight at the F-4. The F-4 uh, tried to fire an AIM-4 missile, and now its weapons control panel went out. What makes this incident uh, interesting and significant is that it involves the malfunction of an American-made defensive tactical weapon system, uh, specifically uh, an F-4 jet. The interesting part of, of the incident is that the Defense Intelligence Agency did an evaluation of the incident and found the incident to be a classic UFO case because of eyewitness uh, verification uh, confirmed by radar and and so forth. 
Hamptons. You see, all along, before these documents were released, we've been reading civilian reports about individuals who've been seeing flying saucers or UFOs or flying disks, and they've been ridiculed for their reliability, their credibility. Now in the documents, these pages that were released by the FBI, the CIA, we see there was no question in the government's mind that these persons were reliable. They're referred to in the documents as early as 1949, seeing these unconventional aerial objects. So there's no question. So now we see corroborated evidence that the people that do see these objects, that have been seeing them since 1949, are responsible people. These civilian reports gripped Gersten. People were having life-altering experiences with anomalous craft. It left them confused, ostracized, sometimes injured. Peter stepped in to help individuals sue the government for information on what could have really happened to them. Two of Gersten's clients are now subject to a notorious sighting and hotly debated. In December of 1980, Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum and Vicki's seven-year-old grandson, Colby, were driving through the southern tip of the East Texas Piney Woods when they came upon a startling object, an object that changed their lives forever. What follows is their witness report. You will first hear Vicki Landrum, then Betty Cash. Colby Lee saw a light, and uh, he kept asking us what the light was. And he kept pulling my face around and asking me, Mama, what is it? And I said, Honey, I don't know. And uh, uh, Betty said, I believe it's getting closer. And I says, Well, it kind of looks like it. But we had no idea that we were going to get hurt. I would say within an instant or so, all of us noticed it because it lit up the entire sky. There was no way you could have missed it. It looked like the woods were being set on fire. And uh, uh, inside the car, it was so hot till my handprint is yet on the dashboard of Betty's car. They got out on their side of the car. I stepped out on mine. I stood behind the car door for just a second or so, and I walked toward the front of the automobile. I stood there for just a short time, I don't know how long, trying to see what I could figure this object out to be. It was diamond-shaped. It didn't mean it was sharp up here and sharp down here. It was kind of round and the fire come out the bottom of it. But here was this huge object and flames shooting from it. And they weren't just small flames. They were gushing from it. And Kobe was hanging on to me. And I, he was trying to get, uh, he started pulling away from me and I pushed him back in the car and I got inside the car put my arm around him and hugged him up real close to me. We thought it was the end of time. I says, uh, um, Kobe, don't be afraid. I said, if uh, you see a man, it'll be Jesus. And I said, he will come to carry us to a better place. He will not hurt you. It was just burning. It was just too much heat. I could not tolerate it. So Vicky screamed and begged for me to get back in the car. Well, I did, but I had to use the end of my leather jacket in order to open my car door to get back in. That's just how hot it was. And when the object lifted and slowly moved over to the right of us, her and Kobe's 
saw some helicopters. There were so many of them, it sounded like a tornado. And we counted 23. I counted 22, really. But Kobe said, there's one more. And I said, yeah, baby, that makes 23. And there were helicopters on both sides and also over the top of the object, or like they were trying to hem it in. It was the first time that I went into the hospital, they were treating us as burns. But then, after they found out really what had happened, then they started treating us as radioactive burns. And since, I have had cancer. No, I'm not well, by no means. I wish, I pray, that I could be. The object was there, it existed. There's no question about that. What's interesting is that for the first time, the government has suggested that it wasn't theirs, that it was possibly a true UFO. And nowhere has the government ever, ever admitted, other than this basic document that we've gotten from 1948, that UFOs exist. Despite all the documents, all of the official military information and acknowledgments, the witness reports, and both scientific and anecdotal evidence, the only thing we know for sure is that this is a very personal phenomenon, one that challenges our notion of what is possible, and our very own place in the universe. All along, we have been searching for confirmation that we are not alone, when the reality of it is, the truth of it is, we are all in this together. As this phenomenon forces us into a shared reality, expectations be damned, it's a reality in which it implores us to listen to each other, to hope and dream with each other, and for Gersten to share in a belief that these things were real. You are not alone. Yeah, I would be the repository for all their information because they had nobody else to talk to that would at least listen to them and at least give them some, okay, yeah, they exist, these things. You didn't, you know, you weren't hallucinating, you know, and things like that. So I was there holding space, for, so to speak, for these people who saw these objects. We had a lot of fun, you know. It was a lot of, looking back, it was a lot of fun, better than trying murder cases, which I did during the day. Yeah, what my was, day what now. was that like with your contemporaries and your professional associates when this started really getting out? Was that difficult? No, matter of fact, just the opposite. Uh, everybody thought that I'd be ridiculed and you know made fun of, but no, because I I was pretty well respected in court trying the murder cases. I was pretty successful, so now I'm getting involved in this. Um, so they like stepped a little closer, and I remember I was picking a jury in a murder case. And I'm, you know, you're allowed in New York to like ask them all kinds of questions. And you sit there and you're asking them questions and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden the judge says, excuse me, Mr. Gerson, can you approach the bench? I said, okay. And went up, you know. And I said, did I say something inappropriate, judge? I didn't hear an objection from the prosecutor. He says, no, no. I just need to tell you what I saw the other night. I said, judge, 
can we wait for the break? You know what I mean? Oh yeah, court officers would come up. I saw you on television. You know, I have a friend who I saw and they can talk to. Oh yeah, so every time I was on a show, they would listen to Art Bell. They'd come in, hey, Peter Gray, you know, blah, 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 you know, and, and they were like lookouts for me. You know, if they heard of something, they would let me know and things like that. So no, it's just the opposite of being ridiculed, you know. It's nice being a celebrity, <laughs> at least you know, for the time being. But it's just, uh, you know, it's funny because you learn after a while that, and especially when I brought up all these people, the clubhouse used to have a whole wall of letters I would receive. You know, uh, I have no room here to put them up. Thanking me for this, changing their life, using, you know, in other words, awesome, um, amazing. Basically, that's them projecting onto me. I'm a mirror for them. Usually mirrors push your buttons and so forth and trigger you, but I'm a type of mirror where they can let out all these, you know, how much they appreciate themselves by projecting it onto me because they're not going to say to them, oh, I'm amazing, I'm awesome. So, yeah. So, no matter what people thought of during the UFO days or even now, I have an opinion of myself. I know who I am. Thank you for listening to Euphemet Obscura. Peter can still be found in Sedona, taking people to the top of Bell Rock. Our first feature on him detailing his amazing journey to become the Vortex Jumper can be found on this very podcast feed. I think after you listen, you will still have questions. I do, but I have such love for this man, and he's truly one of my heroes in the field. For more on the UFO cases in this episode, consider joining our Patreon. We'll have an article up this week featuring the witness testimony of Ralph Mayer concerning his 1952 film. Also, we'll be posting in our exclusive Patreon podcast feed a conversation with UFO writer Ryan Sprague from Euphemet, the original series. That all can be found at patreon.com slash euphemet. Thank you so much for all those that have joined so far. It's really an incredible help and directly responsible for this show, Forging Ahead. Speaking of Ryan Sprague, I had the pleasure to be on his podcast Somewhere in the Skies this week. I'd recommend checking that out. I share stories from Euphemet Season 1, and we dig deep into our own insecurities surrounding belief in the paranormal. That can be found on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'd like to thank Care Of, The Mind Pod Network, Planet Weird, Evolve and Ascend, and Audio Boom for the support. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and add us on social, Twitter, and Instagram, at Euphemet and me, at It's Jim Perry. This has been Euphemet Obscura. I'm Jim Perry, and until next time, keep looking up.